Let's begin reading in Philippians chapter 1 and verse 27. Only let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of your affairs, that you stand fast in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel, and not in any way terrified by your adversaries, which is to them a proof of perdition, but to you of salvation and that from God. For to you it has been granted on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake, having the same conflict which you saw in me and which you saw in me and now hear in me. Paul is not trying to preach the gospel to them. Paul is trying to help them understand how to live the gospel. And the three things I want us to think about this morning as we thread on down through verse 11 of chapter 2, though I stopped at verse 30. The first thing I'd like for us to think about with regard to living the gospel is Paul will talk about striving together, not against one another. Notice again verse 27. Only let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you, or am absent, I may hear of your affairs, that you stand fast in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. All seems to be well in Corinth, I mean at Philippi, but Paul is cautious about things. And the thing that Paul is encouraging them about, and that he's cautious about is, the attitude that takes the kingdom as a tool to use for vainglory to produce strife. And what Paul is trying to get them to see here is that when we become so filled with vainglory that we produce strife, we destroy, we destroy a sense of oneness that we should have. And so Paul says they are to strive together for the faith of the gospel. He's trying to get them and us by extension to see that if we want to have greatness, that greatness is found not in being served, but serving others. And so he will begin striving together for the faith of the gospel. In Ephesians chapter 4, Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 1, Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 1, listen how Paul will say it here. I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you are called, with all lowliness and gentleness, with long suffering, bearing with one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. He's saying the same thing to the Ephesians. He said to the Philippians, just a different way. But there's a predicate upon which he says the things he does in verses 1 through 3. And that predicate or that basis is found in the seven ones. And he will continue. When he says there's one body, one spirit, just as you're calling, one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. But to each one of us is given these gifts. 
So he lists the seven ones of Revelation. But before those seven ones of Revelation can have power and influence, he says, first of all, we must have this kind of spirit about us. We must have the kind of spirit in which we are lowly, which we are gentle, which we're long-suffering, which we're forbearing and endeavoring to keep the unity of the spirit, the bond of peace that is, that is kept together by love. He says, if we don't have that unifying spirit like that, then these seven ones that are the basis of everything will mean nothing. The only way we can live these seven ones of revelation is that we have this kind of spirit striving together for the faith of the gospel, not against one another, that we have this unifying spirit of lowness, gentleness, long-suffering, and forbearing. But when vainglory and self-seeking begin to enter into a relationship of people in a collective like this, then we are simply taking advantage of the opportunity of the kingdom of God to use it for ourselves, not for God and not for others. It's interesting in chapter 4 of Ephesians, he will talk about this unifying spirit, which we're speaking of in Philippians chapter 1. It's much like marriage. When two people stand before an official to become marriage, at the end, the official may say something like this, and the two shall become one. But it will take them the rest of their life to do that. The two don't become one automatically. It's a byproduct of something. It's a byproduct of a relationship that grows, that matures. And so when he talks about this oneness and this one unifying spirit, we begin that way, but it will take the rest of our lives to accomplish that. Unity is not a goal. Unity and oneness are byproducts. They're byproducts of spiritual maturity. They're byproduct of people who every day are becoming more one with the Lord. And as they're becoming one with the Lord and others are becoming one with the Lord, they're becoming one together. We have the unique opportunity in this congregation, especially the last several months, to have had several people come and join this fellowship of people. But just because they've come and joined this fellowship of people does not make them automatically one with those of us who have been here a long time. That oneness can be attained. It can be attained as we grow closer to the Lord and therefore closer together with this kind of unifying spirit. And so then as we grow closer together, we've said, I do to the Lord but it will take the rest of our life to accomplish that kind of spirit because spiritual maturity is always ongoing. And so as we assimilate people into this fellowship that join us, we have to keep in mind, it's just like the beginning of a new marriage. It's the dance that takes place in the relationship. It's the relationship that grows closer together so that over time you have a people that are so bound together by this unifying spirit, you can't separate them, you can't divide them. And then the seven ones upon which all this is based can be seen in everybody's lives. And when I think about this, 
I think about Jesus and, and the 12. You know, when he called those 12 apostles, they were narrow-minded. They were clods. They were prejudiced. And they were filled with carnal and vain ambition. They were a bunch of preachers wanting their name in lights. And Jesus just simply has to burn that carnal ambition out of them. you got to wonder along the way, will these clods, these thick-headed, superstitious, prejudicial men ever get it? I mean, for three to three and a half years, there's one thing that is a constant in their life. Their concept of who's going to be grace in the kingdom of God was just like the Gentiles, those who lord it over the others. I mean, even up until the last, you have in Matthew chapter 20, James and John that come with Mother Zebedee. I mean, when we want something done, let the boys bring their mother with them. And it'll always be done because mother's going to speak for the boys. James and John are grown men. And Mama Zebedee comes and says, listen, Lord, you know they're good boys. They've served you well in the kingdom. Can't you just give one a place at your right hand and one a place at your left hand? And they said, thank you, Mom. Thank you for doing that. Thank you for telling them how great we are. And then the other disciples, it says, are filled with anger toward them. And we listen to that story and we say, well, absolutely so. The very idea they should be so carnally ambitious and filled with such vainglory, they would come with their mother of all things. I mean, come on, are you not broken from the sucking on the bottle here can you not be your own men and you have to bring your mother to talk for you they weren't angry because of that they were angry because James and John beat them to the punch they were thinking the very same thing well maybe they'll get that figured out but no the night before Jesus is crucified you have the events that are elucidated in John chapter 13 in which Jesus has been talking to these guys. Luke chapter 22 verse 24 is the parallel to that. They're talking among themselves about who's going to be graced in the kingdom of heaven. And Jesus knows they're talking about it. And I don't know whether he was thinking like this or not, but from the book of Ricky, this is my imagination. He's thinking, you know, I've been butting my head against a wall here. For three years with these guys, what can I do now to get them to see this? I know what I'll do. I'll do the most servile thing I can possibly do. I will stoop and I will wash their feet. And so he takes that pitcher of water, pours it into a basin, takes a towel, and goes and stoops to wash their feet. And who's the first one he stoops to wash? Peter. And you remember what Peter said? Not my feet, Lord. And basically what, Peter's, what Jesus says to Peter is, Peter, if I don't wash your feet, you're done. Then in typical impetuous fashion, Peter said, then not my feet only, Lord, my whole body. It's kind of like drill cream. A little dabble, do you? Peter wants the whole thing all over him. And Peter said, Jesus said, Lord, Jesus said to Peter, listen, just your feet. And then at the end of all that, he says, you see the things I've done to you? You go do to one another and to others. And by the way, there was one fellow in that crowd whose feet he washed. He had already made the deal. He had already made the deal to deliver him. 
he stooped also to wash the feet of the man that would dip the sop with him, that would betray him. So when you hear Paul say, striving together for the faith of the gospel, we think about how Jesus had to work to pull these 12 men to be one. Who were filled with such vain glory. Who wanted their place of prominence in the kingdom of God. And he said, look, the way you accomplish this is a unifying spirit that you look with each other as through eyes of lowliness, gentleness, and forbearing one another. And I would suggest to us that no congregation will ever exist with peace and harmony without people in that fellowship who have this kind of spirit. And if there arises among us a diatrophies who must have his preeminence, then that striving together turns into striving against one another. Just as John said he would withstand diatrophies to the face, there's not a place for diatrophies among the fellowship of God's people. We all, in lowliness and gentleness and forbearance, stoop to serve each other. And so what Paul says in Philippians chapter 1 and verse 27 is, don't use the opportunity to be in the kingdom of God to stroke our vain glory, to have ourselves with a spot, our name spotlighted in lights. Have this kind of spirit. Striving together, not against one another. And then turning back to the book of Philippians. This time, book of Philippians, I want you to turn over with me just real quickly to chapter 3 and verse 20. Because there's something I want to pull here back into chapter 1. Back into verse 17, it says, Brethren, join in following my example and note those who so walk as you have us for a pattern. For many walk of whom I have told you often and now tell you even weeping that they are the enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly, whose glory is in their shame, who set their mind on earthly, earthly things. For, and here's the passage, our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform us, who will transform our lowly body, that may be conformed to his glorious body, according to the working by which he is able even to subdue all things to himself. Verse 20, he says, our citizenship is in heaven. Philippi was a little taste of Rome. In 42 B.C., when you had the fight between Octavian and Mark Anthony and Cassius and Brutus. And Octavian and Mark Anthony won the battle. And they reigned supreme. And then eventually Octavian and Mark Anthony fell out with one another. And when Cleopatra took her ships and went back home, Octavian won. Well, in 31, then, you had Philippi was made kind of an annex of Rome. It became a Latin city just like Rome, and people spoke Latin. They dressed like Romans. They lived like Romans. Their citizenship was there. 
And what Paul is telling us here in Philippians chapter 3 and verse 20 is our citizenship is in heaven. We don't walk like, we don't talk like, we don't act like citizens of this world. Our citizenship is somewhere else. We, we act like, talk like, and walk like citizens of the king, the king of heaven. He is the one. And what that means then is that when we come into an assembly like this, we are citizens of the kingdom of heaven, and an assembly like this ought to be just a foretaste, just a foretaste of what the general assembly in heaven would be like, in which we all bring something to the table to offer to one another, and enhancing our relationship with the Lord in worship together. And so he says, our citizenship is in heaven, but with that citizenship, we come back now to Philippians chapter 1, and notice what he will say beginning in verse 28. And not in any way terrified by your adversaries, which is them proof of perdition, but to you of salvation and that from God, for to you it has been granted on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, but to suffer for his sake, having the same conflict which you saw in me and now here in me. Do you see that Paul, how Paul views suffering here? Paul views suffering as a gift. Well, how, how is suffering a gift? Because he says, for to you it has been granted on the behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, but to suffer for him. Because of all that Christ has done for us. Because of how Christ gave his life for us. He said, it is a blessing, it is a privilege that is granted to us to suffer for him. And I wonder whether we see suffering as that gift, that opportunity to do it for him because of what he's done for us. Have you ever had someone do something that was just magnanimous for you? Uninvited, unbidden, unexpected? And that you found difficult the words to say, thank you. Your heart was just filled with such gratitude toward the gift that was extended at some cost for you. And you wrestle with how can I say thank you to this one. Well, that's what Paul is saying here. That's how he views suffering. He views suffering as the opportunity to say to the Lord, for what you've done for me, thank you so much for what you've offered to me. And Paul says, how can I express this to you? How exactly can I get this over to you? How can I get you to see what God has done for us and us appreciate this, this gift that he's given And so he will jump in chapter 2 and say, have this mind in you which is also in Christ. And then he elucidates the mind of Christ. And what was that mind of Christ beginning in verse 6 of chapter 2? Who being in the form of God did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant, coming in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself, became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Therefore God also has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, 
At the name of Jesus, every knee should bow, those in heaven, and those on earth, and those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. What did Christ do? He left the glory of heaven. In John chapter 17, in John chapter 17, we get an indication, I think, of what this is about. In John chapter 17 in verse 5, in verse 4 he says, I have glorified you on earth. I have finished the work which you have given me to do. And now, O Father, glorify me together with yourself, with me. And now, O Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. What did the Lord give up? He gave up that place. He gave up that glory that he had with God in heaven. We don't have the capacity to appreciate that. He didn't leave his attributes in heaven. He didn't leave his power in heaven. Everything that was peculiar to him being deity was part of who he was on the earth, incarnate as God. All the attributes that he had, all the power that he had was at his disposal. He could do what he wanted to as God in the flesh. But what he left was his glory. He said it's robbed, he considered it not robbery to be equal with God. He's not talking about authority here. He's talking about what he gave to serve man to come in the flesh. Do you remember how that unfolded? Do you remember what Christ did for us? Do you remember how, how that played itself out? Do you remember how Judas had made the arrangement to come and deceive Jesus or and, uh, to deliver Jesus and to identify him and it was going to be with a kiss? Remember that? But when you go to John, John's gospel, John seems to indicate the kiss never took place. My observation may be incorrect about what Matthew does. Matthew, a lot of the times, will state something that was the target, but then something else will intersect, and while that was the intent of what, the, what he was doing, something else intersects and something else takes place. And so Judas had made the deal. I will deliver to him, him to you, and I will identify him with a kiss. But that's not how John said it happened. When Jesus is there in the garden, and John brings those 600 soldiers. Man, he must be a bad guy. 600 Roman soldiers come with Judas, and Jesus steps out and says, Who are you looking for? And they say, Jesus of Nazareth. And John says, they fell backwards. Wouldn't you like to have been there to be a fly on the tree to have seen that one? 600 Roman soldiers with swords and lights in the night come and they fall backwards when Jesus says, I am he. And they pick themselves up and he says, who are you looking for again? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. And he said, I'm right here. Jesus gave himself to them. Judas may have intended to deliver him with a kiss, but Jesus gave himself to them, and they take him. And they have that early morning trial that was a farce because it already bribed the witnesses to lie, to lie about him. We get tickled about the injustices today, about witnesses that lie. Listen, they already, they already perfected it. They paid witnesses to lie about him. And then in the meantime, Judas is struck in his own conscience and he comes and brings the money back and they won't accept it. And they said, what is that to us? That's blood money. Wait a minute, time out. It wasn't blood money when you gave it to them? You weren't worried about being defiled before when you gave it to them and now you're worried about being defiled? When did you become so worried about being pure? 
Here you have your murderous hearts that are here, and you're going to murder him, an innocent man, just for the unjust, and you're worried about taking blood money back. It seems to me like you ought to have bigger worries than that. Well, that's Ricky's commentary. That's not part of the story. But that's kind of what's going on here. And remember, they pressed this. They pressed this until they'd taken the pilot. And Pilate does have some sense about him, both politically and morally, for a little bit. Morally, as long as it suits his own purposes, because he realized Jesus was innocent. But his political standing overwhelmed his moral standing. And he knew that if he did not deliver Jesus, the Jews were going to cause such a ruckus that Caesar would come down and take the power that he has, the puppet from Caesar, and take that away from him, and he would be history. And what he didn't realize was he was going to be history just in the dustbins of infamy, not that which was glorious. And he delivered Jesus over to them. And they take him to the cross and they crucify him. And who is at the foot of the cross? Those same men that are filled with hatred and spite, who have spat upon him, who have scourged him, who have mocked him, who have placed a rope upon him, who have slapped him, who have slugged him. They did not even have the human decency to stay away. And I suggest that if we'd never known inkling one about who Jesus of Nazareth was, if we'd never heard a word one about Jesus of Nazareth in all the world, and we come across the hill there and we see a man on a skull out here between two other men. And the man in the middle is saying to all those that are circled around that cross, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. They know not what they do. We would have known they had the wrong man. Because guilty men don't say that. People will ooh and ah about Jesus. Until an expectation and a demand is placed upon them to be his follower. It's kind of sanitary today to tell that story. We're so far removed from it. We don't understand the gore. We don't understand the horrific pain that was associated with that. It's nice to ooh and ah about the party they had, mocking this man, but then when it comes to an expectation of what is necessary to follow him, we will tuck tail and we will run because we're not going to have it. And Paul is saying, it's a glory to suffer for him because of what he has done for us. What can I do for him to tell him thank you? If you have all he's done for us in that, how can I express my heart to him? Why is he there? Why does he stay there? Well, he stays there because the nail's holding there. No. He made the mountain from which they mined the ore from which they fashioned the nails. He made the tree from which they cut the cross. Those nails don't hold him there. Those soldiers don't hold him there. The thing that holds him there is heaven's love. And what he's saying is, I can't come down from this cross and provide 
for you, humanity, what you need. If I come down from this cross before this is finished, you have no hope whatsoever of ever seeing the hem of the garment, the dust of the road of what heaven's going to be like. He gave himself willingly for me and for you. And it was heaven's love that held him there. He didn't have to do it. He was under no obligation to do it. Why did he do it? He gave up his rights. The right of the glory of heaven. Emptying himself for that. For me. And for you. Humanity did not deserve the gift. But alas, the gift is extended. And Paul is saying, it is a gift. It is, it, is a, it is something that is presented to us as an opportunity to serve and suffer for him because of how he has suffered for us. We prick our finger and we stump our toe. And we jump around to the Indian dance, jumping down, up and down, hollering, oh, how we have been hurt. Listen. We've experienced nothing compared to what he's doing for us. And we worry about our own little petty flea bites. And somebody insulted me. How come I didn't get the opportunity to do this? How come I didn't get the opportunity to do that? And someone said something to me that hurt my feelings? Listen. Talk about hurt feelings. He gave up his rights. He emptied himself of his rights for us. And we're worried about our hurt feelings? And then we're going to talk about how we've suffered because somebody hurt our feelings? We're going to talk about how we suffered because we stumped our toe in the process of it? We're going to worry because some little petty flea bite pricked us when he died on a cross for us. He emptied himself for us. How can we suffer for him? And I would suggest we have no equal to that suffering for him. Anything that we're called upon to endure as we live life under the sun is nothing in comparison to him. Can we learn that? That's how you strive together with that unifying spirit. But then Paul was also saying, here's how you live that out. Therefore, if there's any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind. That each esteem others better than himself. That each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. And the way that Paul says that is this. If there are any affection and mercy, and there is. If there is any fellowship of the Spirit, and there is. If there's any of being one mind, and there is. If there's anything to be done with, he says, 
lowliness of mind, and there is, then look out for each other. You have this fellowship, you have this consolation, you have this lowliness, all those things, yes, they are there. It's not if a possibility. It's not if it's unsure. It's since these exist. These do exist. And they exist when we have what he says in verse 5, the mind of God in us. And turn back to Philippians chapter 3 again. That verse 21, notice what he says. It will transform our lowly bodies that it may be conformed to his glorious body according to the working by which he is able to subdue all things unto himself. And what he's saying is when we have this kind of spirit, we have the mind of Christ in us. And until and unless we have the mind of Christ in us, we'll not have the unifying spirit that enables us to stand fast with one spirit in the gospel. How do we attain unity? By spiritual growth. And by willingness to suffer for the Lord. And if we're called upon to serve others in the process. Then that is not too high a price to pay. We must know the price. We must believe in what it costs. We must love what it costs. And if we're willing to pay the price and believe in what it costs, and to love what it costs, then what is there that is too great for us to suffer for him? And so that's what Paul is trying to get us to see here in chapter 1 down through verse 11 of chapter 2. So the question I have to ask myself as, as we bring this to a close is, am I willing to empty myself like the Lord emptied himself? And what way can I possibly say thank you to him for what he's done for me other than to do for others what he's done for me? Well, thank you for considering that with me this morning. We have a word of prayer, and I think we have time for a couple of verses of song, Terry, and then we'll be dismissed to our classes. Thank you. Thank you for connecting with us this morning. We're so thankful that you were able to do that. If you have questions, we'd love to have the opportunity to talk to you. You can contact us at www.thebibleway.com or questions at thebibleway.com. Questions at thebibleway.com. We'd love to have you in person. Come if you can. But thank you for connecting with us.